scripture reading tonight is from John 15, verses 18 through 25. If the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. If you belong to the world, it would love you as its own. As it is, you do not belong to the world, but I have chosen you out of the world. That is why the world hates you. Remember what I told you, a servant is not greater than his master. If a servant is not greater than his master, if they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. They observe my teaching and they will observe yours also. They will treat you this way because of my name, for they do not know the one who sent me. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not be guilty of sin. But now they have no excuse for their sin. Whoever, whoever hates me hates my father as well. If I had not done among them the works that no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin. As it is, they have seen, and yet they have hated me, hated both me and my father. But this is to fulfill what is written in their law. They hated me without reason. This is God's word. You may be seated. From time to time, I'd like to remind you that uh, we have these little pink cards in the, uh, the pew racks called encouragement cards. If there's somebody that you would like to encourage uh, maybe somebody uh, uh, struggling a little bit with health. Maybe uh, you know personally that they're struggling with, with some aspect of their spiritual life or uh, you know whatever it might be. They could just use a kind word. They could use an encouraging word. And that's what those pink cards are for. Uh, please take one of those out or, or take multiple uh, uh, cards out and, and fill them out. Put your name on it. Put the name of the person you would like it sent to. There's a space on the front and the back of that card for you to be able to write a message that's uplifting to them. And then as you go out, there are a couple of boxes on either side of the main exits from this auditorium that you can put those pink cards in, and the church office will collect those and make sure that they get mailed to the, to the right person. And it, it's, it's a great way to, to let somebody know that you're thinking about them. And, and too many times, uh, you, you know, we, we come into our assembly and we worship God together, and there are, there are times when, when people are very honest and they're very open about the things that, uh, that need to be addressed in their heart and the prayers that need to be lifted up on their behalf in the name of Jesus. And, and sometimes we don't. And, but we discover those things either in private conversation or whatever it might be, but we never want anyone to be a part of this church family and to go without those doses of encouragement that really do lift the soul and, and, and lighten the step a little bit. There's, there's something about knowing that somebody else is praying for us, knowing that somebody else is concerned about us, somebody that is, is reaching out and expressing uh, some kind of kindness or some kind of you know, affection towards us during this difficult period of time that really makes a difference in the way that we look at life. And these are not just, you know, gimmicky little cards. And these are cards that really do change the way people look at their day and, and look at their life and look at the situation that they're in. Everybody from time to time needs some encouragement. And so if you know somebody that could use that encouragement, take one of those. And you don't have to fill it out here. You can fill it out at home, bring it back on a Wednesday night, stick it in that box, drop it off at the church office. We'll make sure that it gets to the person that it's designated to go to. But the main thing is, is that we be a body that really weeps when others weep and rejoices when others rejoice, that we bear the, each other's burdens, that, that we truly, uh, you, you know, not allow anybody to suffer alone. 
And so if you know somebody that could use an encouragement card, those cards are uh, there in the pew rack for you to use. Uh, tonight we're going we're gonna to talk about something uh, that, that's, that at first glance, hate does not look like that. it's all that positive of, of a doctrine. And in many ways it's not. It's not an easy thing to talk about, especially in light of the passage that Phil just read for us out of John chapter 15. But here's the thing. Whenever we look at anything through, through the, uh, the paradigm of Christ Himself and the theology of the Bible, there are great things to take away that not only encourage us, but also transform the way that we relate to other people inside and outside the community of faith. So before we jump into this passage that, that Phil read in, in John 15, the fourth gospel, let's ask God to bless us. Father, we have a, a difficult task ahead of us tonight. Uh, to talk about um, how sometimes we're hated because we love you. And it seems so ironic, and it, and it seems at times so unjust to, to, to live a life of love and of grace and of truth and, and to be winsome in, in all of our dealings with, with people in this community and, and with each other, but then uh, to come face to face with hate as it rears its head is, is not just a, a reminder that there is uh, an, an evil persona that, is, that, that will try to thwart every ounce of love that is sprinkled in our lives and in the lives of the people around us in this community. But it is a, a reminder, Father, that, that, that this world is still not what it should be and will be at the second coming. And so what we're asking for tonight, Father, is to be good stewards of this Word, and we need Your help to do that by giving us eyes that see it and ears that hear it in such a way that it goes all the way down into the deepest parts of our being and changes us and, and gives us perspective and gives us the motivation to, to live as disciples even when there is pushback and opposition in, this, in, 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 in our life. And we pray all of this in the name of Jesus. Amen. I've, I've mentioned a couple of times over the years, probably more than a couple of times, from time to time I mention the fact that, that opposition to Christianity seems to be on the rise in the United States. Uh, there have been those that have argued, uh, and, and I think it is a debatable point, whether or not we were ever a, a, a Christian nation in the sense of biblical Christianity. But I would say this, that regardless of where you stand on that argument, we are post-Christian and probably quickly and increasingly becoming anti-Christian in this culture. And what that means is that we really need to do a better job. I need to be doing a better job of preparing not only our children, but our entire community of, of faith, our, th this church, this, this church of Jesus Christ, this, this body of believers and how to deal with opposition, and how to deal with a hatred that comes sometimes out of nowhere. Uh, I'll give you an example of how it sort of comes out of nowhere, and it comes in the most unexpected times. Many years ago, you remember, uh, there were a lot of people here that were uh, displaced and evacuated out of New Orleans because of the Katrina hurricane. And there were lots of people that came out of, the, out of that city in order to survive. And there were lots of people that went back into that city to try to help and rebuild it. There were youth groups all over the United States that would show up and they would, they would clear away 
uh, debris. They, they, would, they would repaint. They would pass out bottles of water. There were all kinds of good things they were doing in the community. One church in, in Fort Worth uh, did exactly that. They sent their youth group into New Orleans right after the hurricane when it was safe to send those kids in there. The kids worked all week cleaning up debris, encouraging people, you know, sharing the love of Christ with everybody that they, uh, they came in contact with. At the same time, this same church was wanting to plant a church in New Orleans, and the guy that they had hired to, uh, to, to do that church plant went to New Orleans, was meeting with the youth group one night when it was discovered in the community that a church was going to be planted in that particular neighborhood. Well, while this, uh, this missionary and these kids from the youth group, from this sister congregation, were meeting one night, there were people in that community, in that neighborhood, that put together flyers and put them on all of the cars and the doors that they could in that community that basically said, this group of people wanting to plant a church in our neighborhood. It is a scam only to get your money. They do not love you. They do not care about you. All they care about is your money. They named the missionary by name. Somehow they got his name. They named him by name in the flyer and said, we want you to go home. We do not want your church. It is just a scam. We could care less about your faith. Now, could you imagine that happening 30 years ago? Or 20 years ago? In the, the, uh, the, the, the growing up years of my own life, I mean, there was, there was never ever that kind of, a, of an experience in, in the youth group. That's not the way that it used to be, but that is the way that it is now. The opposition to the Christian faith is much more public and is much more verbal than it has ever been. Now, that's not to say that it's a new phenomenon. It's not. The Apostle John, writing in 1 John chapter 3, had to face the same kinds of things and even wanted to prepare the church in Asia Minor for the same kind of pushback that they would receive when they tried to live as light and as Christ and as disciples of Jesus in those communities where the church was spread out. And so he says, do not be surprised, 1 John chapter 3, verse 13, do not be surprised, my brothers and sisters, if the world, what? Hates? If the world hates you. John, the apostle, is not surprised at this phenomenon because the Lord had prepared him for such a world, for such an experience, for such a pushback. And that part of that preparation, not all of it, but part of that preparation came in the form of the text that Phil read for us tonight. And I want us to read it again. And I want you kind of mentally, as I'm reading it, to count the number of times that the word hate or hated is used. Now what is ironic about this is that Jesus is, is, there has never been a more loving individual in the history of the world. He is the epitome of love. It is because of love that He was sent to the world. It is because of love that He died on the cross. He loved people. He had compassion on them. But notice, ironically, the number of times that He uses the word hate in these few, these, these few uh, uh, sentences. If the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. If you belong to the world, it would love you as, it, as its own. As it is, you do not belong to the world, but I have chosen you out of the world. That is why the world hates you. Remember what I told you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. If they obeyed my teaching, they will obey yours also. They will treat you this way because of my name, for they do not know the one 
who sent me. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not be guilty of sin. But now they have no excuse for their sin. Whoever hates me hates my Father as well. If I had not done among them the works no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin. As it is, they have seen and yet they, ha- they have hated both me and my Father. But this is to fulfill what is written in their law. They hated me without reason. They hated me without reason. Jesus is telling His disciples that they will be hated because He Himself was hated. Without reason, but He Himself was hated as well. You know, any Christian teaching that tells you that once you become a disciple of Jesus, you have been converted by the Gospel and have become a member of the church, that once you enter into the kingdom of God, your troubles are going to be over. They have not been listening very closely or intently to the words of Jesus. Jesus said that hatred will be a reality to living life as His disciple in in this world. One of the things that you cannot argue with is that Jesus did not try to hide this at all. The hard teachings of Jesus were never put in fine print. Jesus was very open that there was going to be difficulty when it came to being His disciple. He would say that if you want to be My disciple, you're going to have to take up your cross every day and follow in My footsteps. Another time He said, you know, if you want to be first, you're going to have to be last. If you want to save your life, you're going to have to lose your life. You're going to have to deny yourself. He also told them that there are going to be times that without reason, don't be surprised, but there are going to be instances that are going to come at you where you are going to be hated because of My name. There are going to be times when the world is going to kick you. In Matthew chapter 5, when Jesus is giving sort of the first blown out, big time teaching of what it means to, to live as a disciple, He says, Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness. Now right there, He's just completely turned upside down the worldly view of persecution and of pain and adversity. If it's for righteousness' sake, there's a blessedness to it. But He's also at the same time saying, Be ready for it. Know that you're blessed, but it is coming. He says, Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of what? Because of me. Because of what I represent to you. Because of my presence in your life. Because of the way that I am ordering your steps and the parameters of my teaching. The way that it's shaping your life. Rejoice and be glad, verse 12, because great is your reward in heaven, for in the same way, you're just following in in the footsteps of those that have gone before you, in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. What Jesus is saying is that if you want to be a member of my kingdom, a member of my church, a part of my body, if you want me to be real in you and you real in me, then expect this. But here's the question. Okay, we know it's going to come. We get that. Why rejoice and why be glad when we're persecuted? That just kind of cuts across the grain of what at least it means at, at, at a very basic level, to be a human being. Who likes pain? Who likes insult? Who likes to be persecuted? Jesus says you're blessed. And to rejoice and be glad when you are persecuted for my name. Now, how does that happen? Let me give you a couple of reasons where this kind of hate and this kind of persecution becomes a positive. Number one, persecution vindicates the justice of God. Let's start with the most difficult. Let's start with the most difficult. Nowhere in Scripture 
are we even given a hint that you can impugn the name of Jesus without God's retribution coming upon you? Back in verses 22, 23, and 24 of John 15, he says, If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not be guilty of sin. But now they have no excuse. Whoever hates me hates my Father, who is God, as well. If I had not done among them the works no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin. As it is, they have seen. They have seen. And yet, and yet, they hated both me and my Father. What Jesus is saying there is that He came into the world, the perfect man, the blameless life, the most holy, the most loving, the most righteous, the most compassionate, the most merciful, and He performed miracles and the people saw it. These were not done most of the time in private. Most of these miracles were done publicly. They heard His teaching. They heard the intent of the kingdom of God as He taught it. They saw Jesus in action day in and day out, and yet their response to Him was to hate Him even though He fed them. And He healed them of their infirmities and of their diseases. And even though His teaching was accepted with gladness, more times than not, the world, the people in that world, decided to hate Him. God sends this perfect life into the world that did nothing but love other people and display the supernatural power to heal, and yet the world decided to hate Following on the heels of the most famous passage in all of the New Testament, John chapter 3, verse 16, are these words. Verse 17, For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through Him. Whoever believes in Him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already, because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. You know, hell is never a very pleasant subject to talk about. But the Bible makes it very clear that hell is a reality for those in the world who hate Christ. And God's wrath is the execution of His perfect justice on those who would mock the life and the ministry of Jesus, who would hate Him even though they saw with their own eyes and heard with their own ears what it is that He was sent to do. That's why I pray every time we go to God's Word that God give us eyes that see and ears that hear so that we not hate God and that we not hate the one that He sent, but that we love them. And that we turn, as He says in Isaiah, by hearing and seeing correctly what it is that, that, that God is calling us to, that we turn towards God and that we are healed. But real people are going to experience hell because there was no good reason to hate Jesus. But when we experience that kind of hate, what we keep in mind is that we are following in the footsteps of the faithful forefathers who were also blessed by God. And that as we live out the ramifications and the implication of God's Spirit in us and, and, a, and a deep abiding love and embrace for the inspired Word of God and allow that Word to shape the way that we, we speak and the way that we interact with people and the good deeds that become light in this community to the glory of God, that there are going to be times when the reaction because of sin and because of this evil persona in the world, it is going to be hatred towards us. But in the end, God is going to be vindicated in His judgment. Number two. Persecution reveals the true disciples. 
In John 15, verse 19, if you belong to the world, it would love you as its own. Jesus has, has brought us out of the world, and that is one of the reasons why the world hates Christians. The world wants everyone. World in, in terms of sort of the spirit of the age, the, the, uh, the inclination of the culture. The world wants everyone to embrace its values. And, and Christians, if we are living as disciples of Jesus and we're picking up on a daily basis our cross and following Him and denying ourselves, then we are going to stand in contrast of that. Why in the world were the prophets persecuted? Was it not that they stood in the middle of the stream and went the other direction and said, Ko Amar Adonai, thus saith the Lord. You'll remember that Jesus did not say in the Sermon on the Mount that the world would hate religious people. He does not say that. What He says is that you will be persecuted for righteousness' sake. The world will hate righteous people. We will be persecuted for righteousness' sake. You don't have to seek that opposition. All you have to do is to seek the kingdom of God and that trouble will find you by the very life that you live in contrast to, as light to the darkness that is the world. But let's be clear. Jesus does not say that we're going to be persecuted for religious rudeness, but for righteousness. And there is a gigantic difference. There is a big, big difference between being a religious, rude individual and being a righteous individual as it is described in Scripture. The world will always hate self-righteous, mean-spirited, smug individuals, whether they're Christians or atheists. And the reason we are hated should be because of our likeness to the Savior, to our likeness to Jesus of Nazareth, which rebukes the superficial values and actions of our culture and points to a God-creator Father of the universe and a Father of all people. But darkness is always going to hate the light. The response of darkness is always going to be hate. Now, there, there are a couple of ways that people can respond to that. To that, that hatred, to that persecution, to that when the world begins to kick back. One is isolation. We can say, you know what, I really am uncomfortable with the way that people look at me and the way that people treat me because I go to church and because I'm a disciple and because I read my Bible and I try to live this kind of life. So you know what I'm going to do is I'm going to isolate myself. It's isolation. One way that we can respond to that persecution is to isolate ourselves and quarantine ourselves away from the world in, in Christian get-outs. The other way that we can respond to it is imitation. You know, Jesus does not want to take us out of the world, but He does want to take the world out of us. And so we are not called to imitate the world in order to save our own skin to live with a foot in both worlds in order to avoid persecution, but to still get to heaven. Listen, you miss the blessing of the kingdom if you seek the blessing of the world. And so the response is not to isolate ourselves or to imitate ourselves in such a, imitate the world in such a way that we camouflage our faith with worldliness. And that way you will, bless the, the, you will miss the blessing of the kingdom. Peter, dealing with that same issue, with that same kind of... of um, of uh, a temptation to the early church writes in the fourth chapter of 1 Peter, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal that has come on you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. If you understand darkness, you understand light, you know that the two men are opposition. But rejoice inasmuch as you participate in the sufferings of Christ so that you may be overjoyed when His glory is revealed. If you are insulted because of the name of Christ, you are blessed. If you are insulted 
because of the name of Christ, you're blessed. For the Spirit of glory and of God rests on you. Basically, Peter is saying that it is a tragedy if people do not recognize that you are a disciple of Jesus, that you are a Christian. It means that they do not see the Spirit of glory and the Spirit of God on you. Now, one of the things about hate that we rejoice in is that it reveals who is serious about their, their life in Christ. Back in 180 A.D., there was, in, in northern Africa, there was a, a, a very famous group of martyrs, the, the, the Silicon Martyrs. They were 12 Christians in North Africa who were executed in July, you know, whatever, 180 uh, A.D. to this day. How many years ago that was? They were, they were executed on July 17, 180 A.D. Here's the deal. One of the martyrs by the name of Spiritus, after about six of them had already been executed, is, is told... You can save your life. Sort of recognize them as kind of the leader of the group. You can save your life if you will just recognize and swear by the name of the emperor. And, and, and Speritus says, uh, listen, my companions and I, we, all we have done is live a quiet life. We've paid our dues. All we've tried to do is, is to do good and never to do wrong to our neighbors. And then they order him, the Roman Empire orders him to swear by the name of the emperor. And when push came to shove, Speritus said, I recognize not the empire of this world, but rather do I serve the God whom no man hath seen, nor with these eyes can see. One of the things that is a positive when this persecution comes is that it reveals the true disciples of Jesus. Number three, persecution intensifies allegiance to another kingdom. In verse 20, Jesus says, As it is, you do not belong to the world, but I've chosen you out of the world. Out of the world. Jesus, when you became a Christian, Jesus is choosing you out of the world as it is. That is why the world hates you. In John 17, in his prayer, before he's crucified, he's praying to God, I have given them, that, whom? Your disciples, your word, and the world has hated them. For they are not of the world any more than I am of the world. You know, a lot of times we preacher types, we talk about worldliness and how bad it is. What is worldliness? I mean, when you get down to the brass tacks, what does it mean to be a worldly individual? Well, a lot of times, at least uh, when, where I was growing up, to be a worldly person meant that you went to R-rated movies or it meant that you liked gambling or, or, or you, you know, any number of other things that seemed to be worldly. And, and a lot of times, you know, it was, it, was, it was things that we never really had contact with at all anyway. But that didn't mean that there was a problem of worldliness even inside of the church, even though we were ignoring all of these other things. You know what worldliness really is when you get down to the base level, to the bottom line of worldliness? Worldliness is, is in any individual, in any disciple, are those places in your heart where the world is Lord and not Jesus. What that means is that any part of your life where Jesus is not Lord, that is worldliness. It could be a relationship. You believe in God, you believe in Christ, you're trying to live according to Scripture, but there's a relationship that you've got to have so badly that you're willing to, to compromise certain principles, laid out specific, concrete principles of relationship in order to have it. That's worldliness. It's sin, and it's worldliness. Or it might be a hobby. Or it might be the way that you choose to use your money, or whatever. But any area of your life where the world and its values and its principles and the way that it dictates behavior 
That's, that's what you obey rather than the commands of Christ. That is worldliness. And so when we begin to see the things of this world as the ultimate reality rather than something temporary, that means that that specific area of our life is something that's an area that the world can use to threaten us. Worldliness is, is a liability. When that thing becomes more important than God, then that becomes an area, a target, in which we can be threatened by the world. You know, in the early church, they were threatened to have all of their property taken away. And these early Christians would say, well, I'm not the owner of it anyway. God is the owner of it. You take my land away, no problem. But guess what? God is making me a home in heaven. They said, well, you're not afraid to lose your money, not afraid to lose your possessions or your land. How about if we take away your life? And they say, well, you know, the body is temporary. There's going to be a day when Jesus comes back and I'm going to be given a glorified body and it's a resurrected body and I'm going to live forever. And even if I lose my life right now, that's only temporary. Do what you may. But wherever there was worldliness in the life of a believer, that's where there was a temptation to compromise. And, you know, one of the things that really helps is if, you know, we have pressed our minds into Scripture so deeply and so profoundly that the, the end, the resurrection, the, the vindication, the glorification of the church, the glorification of our own lives, the reward that we will receive, the new heavens and the new earth coming together and God dwelling with His people, when we know that in, it changes how we deal with any adversity in this life. I've told you this story before. There was a time when, uh, when I was living in Brazil and, and Brazil did not have cable television and, and it was about the time when the Cowboys were worth watching again in the early 90s. And I had this, this really great brother-in-law. We're very, very close even to this day. One of my best friends. And he would send me uh, VHS tapes. Remember those things? The big old bricks that would have tape in it. He would record those cowboy games and he would send them to me. He wanted me to be able to watch those games even though I was down in Brazil. And he, he, what, what was really kind of funny is I'm going, oh, great, man. I'm, I'm going to be able to watch these games. and It's just going to be like being in the States and watching it at, at mom and dad's place. And then I opened up the box and he had written down the scores of every game. And so I pull out this one tape and it was uh, uh, Cowboys had beaten the Redskins and I knew that the Cowboys were going to win. It was that first season where they actually went to the Super Bowl after a long drought and, and won it against the Bills. And their first game against the Washington Redskins, uh, they won it, but it didn't start off all that great. And because I knew the end in advance, I'm watching this game, and when somebody would fumble, I didn't get up and scream. And when somebody would make a dumb play or the referee would make a, a dumb call, didn't throw something at the television. Why? Because I knew what the end was. I knew that the Cowboys had already won. And so there was no reason to fret and to feel threatened by any of the mistakes or any of the, the, the fumbles or any of the, the, the penalties that happened during the middle of the game. I already knew what the end was like. The same is true with anything temporary that the world were tried to use to intimidate us to not live a life of love and to speak the truth in grace and to be merciful because it triumphs over judgment and to be generous and to do our good deeds as light in this community because that gives glory to God. And when we know about the resurrection body and the home that Jesus has prepared for us and all of the other promises for the world to come and to know that everything will be put to right, that, that every ounce of, 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 of justice that, that needs to be put right in terms of all of the injustices that have been experienced in this life, that God is going to be vindicated in all of His judgments, all of the promises for the world to come, then it affects the way that we live right now in this world.
In Mark chapter 10, Jesus says, Truly I tell you, no one has left home or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or fields for me and the gospel will fail to receive a hundred times as much in this present age. Homes, brothers, sisters, mothers, children, and fields along with what? Along with what? Along with persecutions. And in the age to come though, eternal life. And then we'll end with this. Persecution magnifies the Lord. One of the great powers of God's kingdom, the great power that is wrought by by God's extended arm and His powerful hands is that He can take anything and, and glorify Himself with it. John chapter 15, verse 18, Jesus reminds us, keep in mind that it hated me first. Which is so ironic. It's, it, it's even hard to, to talk about. You, you think about the most sensitive, loving, gracious, kind, giving, self-sacrificing, altruistic person who ever lived, the most sensitive man who ever lived, who was cruelly crucified. And because he was so sensitive, the more painful it was. What is there to hate? Well, John does tell us in John chapter 3, verse 19, He came as light and exposed the darkness. And darkness always hates the light. The darkness always hates the light. And when that light came into the world in the form of Jesus, into the dark world, and the dark hearts of men, and, and the light of Jesus intersected, men had two options to that light. That was to repent and to come into that light. To come out of darkness and to get into that light. Or to put out the light. And what they chose to do was to kill that light. They chose to kill it. But here's the thing. When you, when you think about, when, when you think about these, these terrible criminals throughout all of history, I mean, you, you, even you think about Adolf Hitler, for instance, or, or even somebody a, a little bit more contemporary like a Charles Manson. You know, it's really hard to hate those individuals because all of that, especially in the case of Hitler, dead long before many of us, uh, not all of us, but many of us were even born dead and gone and turned to dust before many of us came e- even into this world. We know the heinous acts. We hate what he did. We hate the genocide. We're trying to still learn the lessons of the Holocaust and to overcome it in this, in this world by, by living lovingly with, with all people. But it's hard to, to hate him. Despise? It's hard to hate. Why? Because he's dead. Because he's dead. It happened a long time ago. And at some point the emotions kind of died down. But why is Jesus, though, who died 2,000 years ago, why is He still hated with such vehemence and with such energy and, 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 and uh, uh, the displacement of, of, of such ire? It's so hard to keep up the hate when somebody's been dead and gone for a long, long time. So why the hate against Jesus? That's the point. Jesus is still alive. The fact that the persecution comes and people still hate the Christ and people still hate the people who call themselves followers of Jesus of Nazareth are all pointing to the fact that He's still alive. And that's why He's been hated continually through the centuries because He's still alive in heaven. He's still directing the affairs of the church. He is still living. He's still alive in you and in me in the way that we live. That's been happening through the centuries and that's why He's been hated day after day, week after week, year after year, century after century. And that's why, regardless of whatever happens, as as profound of a a loving life 
and a disciple of Jesus, imitating His compassion for sinful people and trying to bring them out of that darkness into light. That's why even though we, we get accosted at times, verbally, and people despise us, that's why we should never be ashamed to be named as one of Jesus' disciples. In Acts chapter 5, I mean, all Peter and John are doing is trying to do something really good to a lame man. Miraculous things are happening right and left. People don't like it all that much. And there's one that comes that comes kind of to the fruit, that comes to the, the head with the Sanhedrin. They don't like the fact that even though they crucified Jesus, people are still doing things in His name. And so they arrest the apostles. They call Him into the Sanhedrin. And guess what? They've been doing good. They've been doing the exact same thing that Jesus has been doing. And guess what? They get treated just like Jesus. They flog Him. And I don't know if you saw the, uh, the, uh, the Passion of the Christ by Mel Gibson a couple of years ago, but you, if you saw it, you never think about flogging ever the same way. They're doing the same thing that Jesus did. They're getting treated the same way as Jesus was treated. Flogged, beaten, rejected. But then Luke says the apostles left the Sanhedrin rejoicing because they had been counted worthy of suffering disgrace for the name. Day after day in the temple courts and from house to house, they never stopped. You know what your reaction is to that kind of persecution? The next day, you're back in the temple. The next day, you're back house to house. The next day, you're back at work, back to school. You're back the next day, and you're living that kind of life as light. They never stopped teaching. They never stopped proclaiming the good news that Jesus is the Messiah. The hate of the world should never trump the love you have for the risen Savior. That's why it's really important that you press your mind into Scripture, that you pray, that you draw near to God and allow God to draw near to you, that, that it's a personal relationship with the Christ, not, not this theological treatise, not just intellectual agreement that, yes, there was you know, this, this, this person that lived by the name of Jesus, but that He was real and that there is the fact of the resurrection and it's impacted your heart and God's Spirit is in you because He's forgiven your sins. They've been washed away because through faith you have participated in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. You're a changed individual. You're changed. You're not darkness. You're light. And that's part of that blessing. That even though you're being persecuted, even though there's that verbal opposition and people misunderstand and they say false things about you and they persecute you, you're blessed because you're light and not darkness. And you get to walk in the steps of Jesus. Not always easy. Not always easy. Not always easy. But you know without a shadow of a doubt, without a shadow of a doubt in your heart, that He is the one that has forged a path for you to be able to come into the embrace of God Himself. And every day, the testimony of the Spirit in your heart, testifying, you're a son of God, you're a son of God, you're a son of God. That's who you are. And, and, the, and the confidence that comes of being strengthened in the inner man and, and, and a life according to Scripture, that protects you from destructing and, and devastating your own life by, by pulling the pins on these, these temptation hand grenades, but actually in so many ways saves your life and protects you from destructing your own, destroying your own life. And you're overflowing with joy as love and peace and patience, kindness and gentleness, all this stuff just through time begins to form in your life. You become beautiful as Jesus was beautiful. You're blessed. 
knowing that not everybody sees it that way. Not everybody sees it that way. I'm just here to tell you that as a disciple, you have to expend energy to make Christ the most precious, that relationship, the most precious experience, the most loving treasure, the most priceless treasure that you have in this life, that if they take everything else away from you, at least you still have that, and it's okay. Because that really is your treasure. It's where you get your identity. It's where you get your hope. It's... I've been preaching too long. What we want to do is respond to this. You know, do you, do you need help standing up and, and facing the darkness as light? Do you need to be encouraged? Do you need to be prayed for? Do you need to decide that you've seen enough, that you've really seen and heard enough of Jesus to know that God sent Him and that you want to be a part of Him and He to be a part of you? Brad's going to lead us in a song right now. And while we're standing and praising God together, we want you to come down and talk to our shepherd if we can minister to you anyway. Let's praise God together. When we walk with the Lord in the light of His Word, what a glory He sheds on our way while we do His good will.